From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, very glad that you're with us today for Open Line Tuesday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. Uh, I'm Tom Price. Glad to be here in studio with our very own Father Wade Menezes from the Fathers of Mercy. How are you? I'm doing great, Tom, and it is great to be with you as well, and this time not over the airwaves with me in Kentucky, but right here in person with you. In the flesh. Here's That's your right. opportunity to ask uh, Father Wade any question that you may have about the Catholic faith. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always shoot us an email if you prefer that. The address is openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Father Wade in the subject line or Tuesday in the subject line. Make sure we can uh, mix and match the right host with uh, the right uh, question here. So, big day that we're celebrating here, the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. Speaking of a different kind of host, the yes. consecrated host, yes. right? Amen to that. Yes, I want my springboard today, uh, Tom, to be about uh, this weekend's great solemnity, and, and a few of the dioceses in the United States are celebrated on the traditional day of Thursday this week, uh-huh. uh, but most are, have transferred Corpus Christi, the great solemnity of Corpus Christi, to the Sunday after Trinity Sunday, which we just celebrated this past Sunday. So this coming weekend, we celebrate the solemnity of Corpus Christi, Latin for the body of Christ. This great feast honors the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, in his body, blood, soul, and divinity, extended to the universal church by Pope Urban IV, who reigned from 12 61 through 1264. This great solemnity finds its origins in the controversies generated by Berengarius of Tours back in 1088 is when he died, who made the presence of Christ in the Eucharist more symbolic rather than real. So the church needed to address it, right? Mm. Uh, later, too, the feast was promoted to the ch- by the church-approved visions in part of the servant of God, Blessed Juliana of Mount Cornelian in Belgium, an Augustinian nun who understood from these visions that God wanted a feast established to honor the Blessed Sacrament, and her visions are approved. So the belief uh, of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is a doctrine of the Catholic faith that is deeply and truly grounded in sacred scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the Church, which sets Catholics apart from their other Christian brothers and sisters. Discussion of this doctrine would not be complete without the mention of the term transubstantiation. Transubstantiation refers to the change of substance, Latin trans, a change or conversion of, and substantia, of the substance, uh, of bread into the body of Christ, and of wine into the blood of Christ at the consecration of the Mass. Uh, Although this fundamental doctrine, Tom, of the Catholic Church has been held by the faithful since apostolic times, the term transubstantiation was officially adopted by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 to describe this great Eucharistic mystery. Uh, This was enforced by the Council of Trent, held from 1545 to 1563, which spoke of, quote, a wonderful and singular conversion, end quote, of the Eucharistic elements. And Pope St. 
Paul VI of happy memory, who completed the Second Vatican Council, which closed in 1965. That same year, he issued his great encyclical on the Eucharist, Mysterium Fidei, Latin for the mystery of faith, also in 1965, which emphatically states that the sacramental presence of Christ in the Eucharist surpasses the laws of nature and constitutes the greatest miracle of its kind, quote, end quote. Of course, only a validly ordained priest can bring into existence the most holy Eucharist, and because of the reality of transubstantiation, reference to the Eucharistic species after the consecration as mere bread and wine is wrong. They are properly called the body and blood of Christ. A couple of church uh, father quotes I want to share here that I think are so telling. St. Cyril of Alexandria, uh, early 4th century, excuse me, early 5th century, quote, we have been instructed in these matters and are now filled with an unshakable faith that that which seems to be bread is no longer bread, though it tastes like it, but now it is the body of Christ, and that that which seems to be wine is no longer wine, though it too tastes as such, but it is now the blood of Christ. Therefore, draw inner strength by receiving this bread as spiritual food, and your soul will rejoice abundantly. And he continues, St. Cyril of Alexandria, Christ said, indicating of the bread and wine, this is my body and this is my blood, in order that you might not judge what you see to be a mere figure. The offerings by the hidden power of God Almighty are changed into Christ's body and blood, and by receiving these, we come to share in the life-giving grace and efficacy of Jesus Christ. And I love this one, uh, St. John Chrysostom. Yeah, he says, it is not the power of that man up there which makes what is put before us the body and blood of Christ, meaning the priest. Yes, yes. But the power of Christ himself working through that man, the priest, who was crucified for us. The priest standing there in the place of Christ says these words, but their power and grace are from God. This is my body, that priest says, and these words transform what lies before him. And I, I love this one. It's from the Jerusalem Catechesis, attributed to St. Cyril of Jerusalem, not Cyril of Alexandria, who okay. I just quoted. But he says this, Since Christ himself has declared the bread to be his body, who can have any further doubt? And since he himself has said quite categorically, this is my blood, who would dare to question it and say that it is not his blood? Do not then regard the Eucharistic elements as ordinary bread and wine. They are, in fact, the body and blood of the Lord, as he himself has declared. Whatever your senses may tell you, be strong in faith. You have been taught and you are firmly convinced that what looks and tastes like bread and wine is not bread and wine, but truly the body and blood of Christ. Now, I'm getting these church father quotes, Tom, from that encyclical from 1965 from Pope Paul VI, uh -huh. titled Mysterium Fidei, where there's over 150 quotes of church fathers from mm. the first seven to eight centuries defending the Eucharistic doctrine. Beautiful. And remember the title of that encyclical, Mysterium Fidei, Mystery of Faith, literally. What are the words that the priest says to the congregation right after he comes up from the second consecration at Mass, which is the precious blood consecration? The very first words he says after he gets up from that second genuflection of the consecration of the second species, the precious blood, is the mystery of faith. Yes. And then there's the three options for mm -hmm. the congregation to respond. Mm -hmm. The mystery of faith. Those words from the Mass is precisely what Paul VI titled this 1965 encyclical, to defend 
the Eucharistic doctrine. And in one sense, we can say that this encyclical closed the Second Vatican Council. And what opened the Second Vatican Council, in a sense, at its opening session, when John Twenty-Third, also now saint, canonized St. Peter Julian Amard, the founder of the Blessed Sacrament Fathers, mm. the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So we can say that the Eucharist is really, truly the two bookends of the Second Vatican Council, at the beginning with John Twenty-Third canonizing St. Peter Julian Amard and Pope Paul VI at the end of the Council issuing Mysterium Fidei as an encyclical. So uh, a, a beautiful image. Uh, and this, especially during this three-year Eucharistic revival that runs from Corpus Christi Sunday 2022 mm-hmm. all the way through Corpus Christi Sunday 2025, actually the week, I believe just before that, uh, is uh, Pentecost Sunday is when it's actually going to end okay. in preparation for the 2025 Corpus Christi Sunday. But here we have this three-year Eucharistic revival where Catholics are called to rekindle their love and devotion to the doctrine of the real presence. So I want our callers today watching live, listening live, let's do our best to focus on the Eucharist today as we approach Corpus Christi with our calls. And Tell me how the Eucharist has transformed your life spiritually. How has the Eucharist affected you? Are you a convert to the faith because of the Eucharist? Are you a cradle Catholic who maybe in your teens finally began to understand the doctrine of the Eucharist? What is your story? What is your witness regarding this source and summit of the entire Christian life? Remember, where the other six sacraments effect the grace they signify, Mm -hmm. the Eucharist not only effects the grace it signifies, the Eucharist is what it signifies. This is why we call it the most blessed sacrament, right? And this is why we honor it in a special way, and Vatican II calls the Eucharist and the celebration of it the source and summit of the entire Christian life. As as the Eucharist, for example, change your marriage with your spouse, it's so edifying to see couples receive Holy Communion side by side at the communion rail, or even if they're receiving standing, they come and stand side by side directly in front of the priest because they've been to a Curcio retreat or something where they've uh, increased their love for the Eucharist. Team Jesus. That's right. Amen. All the way. And, And I love that quote that you mentioned, you know, that man up there. Yeah. Not to negate the the value of the priesthood and and what the priest is doing, but uh, let's you know put this in a pr- proper perspective. Here. It's all God working through the priest. You better believe it. Lines are open for you right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. If you have a question for Father Wade, perhaps you'd like to expound a little bit on the Eucharist. Love to hear from you at eight three three two eight eight. 3986 Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1 833 288 EWTN. That's 1 833 288 3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, it's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. He is in studio. We have one line open right now at 833-288-EWTN. Before we get to the phones, let me tell you a little bit about EWTN Media Missionaries. Who are they? These are wonderful folks just like you who prayerfully take EWTN to parishes and the greater community through the print and electronic media that we provide. 
you can help EWTN share the good news by becoming a media missionary yourself. Visit EWTNmissionaries.com today. EWTNmissionaries.com. These are wonderful folks, and you too can join us in sharing the eternal word with the world. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with James in Pensacola, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. James, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, sir. I have a. I mean, I was listening to Dr. David Andrews, you know, last hour, mm-hmm. and a question came out, you know, that uh, he was using a, an analogy of if two people were living on an island and and they were able to get married, you know, or or you know, you know, without a marriage license, and then yet there are some people that'll probably you know, do the same thing. And my question is, uh, is this, what is the difference between a natural marriage like that and cohabitation? Okay, great question. And I think you're asking about natural marriage in two different ways. So first, let me just answer answer your question in a general sense. Cohabitation, per se, does not have a view to a marriage where a natural marriage, because of a particular circumstance, like a political circumstance, where the couple is not able to marry in the church because of the suppression of the church by the secular government, they make a commitment to one another uh, to want to be married as though they are married, complete exclusivity, and possibly even remaining continent, that is, with no sexual relations, and living as though brother and sister until they can indeed get married uh, validly by the Church. Okay, in other words, it's through no fault of, of their own. That's, that's, the, that's the angle of natural marriage you're talking about. The other sense of natural marriage is when you have a baptized Christian, Catholic or non, but a baptized Christian, validly baptized in a Trinitarian formula, marry a non-Christian, either non-baptized, uh, from a Christian background, but not baptized at all, uh, or maybe not Christian per se, like maybe a Muslim or a Hindu, um, what you have is you can have a disparity of cult marriage, but it's not, meaning they have differences of followings. That's what cult means. Disparity of cult means there's a disparity within their followings of how they view their religion, how they view their faith. You can have a, 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 a Catholic, a baptized Catholic, can marry somebody who's non-Christian, but it's not a sacramental marriage in the Church, but it is a valid natural marriage. And they sought that out with a view to marriage per se, as opposed to just mere cohabitation. So you're asking about cohab- uh, uh, natural marriage in the first sense, but I wanted to also answer about natural marriage in the in the second sense, when a natural marriage has a view to a marriage, but it's not a sacramental marriage, but it's still authenticated by the Church. Okay. Hope that's helpful for you, James. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We pretty much have sold-out phones today. So uh, Great call- problem to have. It's a wonderful <laughs> problem. Uh, so call early at 833-288-EWTN. Here is a Christian now, a first-time caller in Dallas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 910. Christian, what's on your mind today? Hi, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, My question is, why is it or how is it that the Orthodox, uh, both the Eastern, Oriental, anyone under that umbrella, Mm -hmm. uh, are considered to have valid sacraments, while the Anglo-Catholics, 
and high church Lutherans are not considered to have valid sacraments. A uh, bit of background for myself, when I was in college, I had some friends from Egypt who were Catholic, but there were uh, no Catholic communities in their area, but they were able to receive uh, the sacraments at their local Coptic churches, right. and so that sort of spurns the question for me. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, great question, Christian. Thank you so much. Um, it's primarily because the Orthodox are separated from Rome through an issue of jurisdiction, not doctrine. The Protestants are separated from Rome precisely because of doctrine. So, for example, Pope Leo XIII indeed declared Anglican orders null and void because of their separation of the doctrine of what we believe. We believe the same with the Orthodox, and the Orthodox believe the same as us, but the Orthodox don't believe in the primacy of the Bishop of Rome over the Universal Church. So it's an issue of jurisdiction, not of doctrine. But with our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, like the Lutherans, as you mentioned, and the High Anglicans that you mentioned, um, that's one of doctrine and jurisdiction, I yeah, guess you could yeah. also add. It's doctrine and jurisdiction, where with the Orthodox, it's just jurisdiction. Uh, and in the split of 1054 AD, you know, it was, uh, you know, who has primacy, uh, Istanbul or, or Rome, you know, uh, so Constantinople or Rome. So mm. uh, that's the issue with the Orthodox. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Christian? Oh, Absolutely. So Great. my Egyptian friends, even though they received uh, all their sacraments in a uh, Coptic Orthodox Church, uh, they're still considered valid and proper and yes, yes, explicit uh, in the Catholic sense. That is correct. But a Catholic in the Roman Rite is not to receive the Orthodox sacraments, although they're valid, unless they are sincerely able not to find a Roman Rite Church or no. one of the Eastern Catholic churches that are in union with Rome, and there's 23 rites of those. Um, if they cannot find a Roman rite church or one of the 23 Eastern rite churches in union with Rome to go to, then they can go to the Orthodox churches to receive communion. But they should seek out their own uh, uh, churches that are in union with Rome first, the Suryuris churches that are in union with Rome, the Latin Rite and the 23 Eastern Rites. Christian, thanks so much for your call. It's called to communion here. Uh, called to communion. Listen to me. Open Line Tuesday. I with, take that as a compliment. Well, <laughs> we do our best here. Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes here on EWTN. Truly the global Catholic network, proving that it really is global. Here is Sega in Newfoundland listening to us on YouTube today. Sega, what's on your mind? Hello. Hi. Hello, Father Webb. Hello. Uh, Webb, that is, this is Sega. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. yes, yes. Go right ahead, please. Yeah, I think I don't understand about the Pentecost, the feast of Pentecost, because I thought maybe our Lord sent the Holy Spirit after he said when he lived, he went to the, to, to the Father, and that's how we celebrate the feast of Pentecost. But today's reading on the top is, reading it says on the day of Pentecost. Was there any feast of Pentecost on the Old Testament? That's the first one. The second one is when the Lord says, I'll send you another paraphrase, another spirit. What does it mean, another? Is that not one Holy Spirit? I don't understand. And the Lord says, I'm going to send you the other. What does that mean? 
Okay. Are, are, are you uh, following all that? Uh, if she could repeat the first question, let's take one question at a time. If, if you could please repeat your first question, that would be great. Thank you so much. The f- okay. The first one is when it says on today's reading, on the, I mean the day, I mean, uh, on top it says on the, on the, on the Pentecost. I thought the Pentecost is only on New Testament. When our Lord went to heaven, then he said that's what we, we have the feast of Pentecost. That's the feast of the Holy Spirit. Was there any feast on the Old Testament? Like on Tobit today, he says, on the day on Pentecost tonight, it says, what does it yes, mean? Yes, today's reading. Today's celebrating. Okay. Yeah, t- today's first reading from uh, the book of Tobit uh, did mention Pentecost, and that was the 50-day celebration of of the the faithful Jewish people of the Old Testament. I would have to research to see exactly what their Pentecost was. I, I don't know offhand what it was. Mm. Uh, it might have uh, uh, been a preparation before their primary celebrations. I don't know. But yes, and remember, Jesus came not to abolish the old law, but to bring it to perfection, right? Uh, to render it perfect. So we should not be surprised by the fact that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as the new Pentecost, marking 50 days, Pente 50, 50 days after Easter, um, to send his Holy Spirit 10 days after his glorious ascension into heaven, which was 40 days after his resurrection. So sending the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the paraclete, the counselor, uh, these are different names for the Holy Spirit that come to us from Scripture. Uh, we should not be surprised that we have a Pentecost in the New Testament that perfects the Pentecost of the Old Testament. Okay, does that help you out? So what, what is the second question? The second one is when the Lord says, it's better for me to go so that I can send you another advocate, the Holy Spirit. Yes, another, that... what, what does it mean, another Yes. Okay, so first of all, the Pentecost of the Book of Tobit is an agricultural festivals. Believers presented to the Lord two loaves of bread, and here we have a Eucharistic hearkening, right? Uh, made from fine flour and baked with leaven as the first fruits of the wheat harvest. This was the Old Testament Pentecost, and we see Jesus even bringing what the Pentecost meant in regards to the offering to God of fresh loaves of, of leavened bread, we see that brought to perfection with the Eucharist. So I want to make that clear. Second of all, as I just mentioned in your first uh, question's answer, we also see Pentecost as a celebration overall being brought to perfection with the sending of the Advocate. So we do have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord calls him the counselor, the advocate, which means to speak for, advocare, or to, to, to be one who speaks for, or to speak one on one's behalf. Think of a lawyer, huh? The, the lawyer of somebody is sometimes called their advocate. Yes. Tom, the Holy Spirit's our lawyer. Doesn't that, that sound great? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the consoler, the advocate, um, you know, these are words that Jesus gave telling the people, look, I'm, I'm ascending now, not to be seen again until my second coming at the end of time. But fear not, because between the time of my ascension, 40 days after my resurrection from the dead, and my coming again at the end of time, you will have the advocate with you, the counselor with you, to guide you in all that I have taught you. And that's what Jesus means in regards to sending the advocate the Holy Spirit. This is why we also see the Holy Spirit referred to as light, as power, as fire, things that have uh, 
ignition to them, uh, yeah. you know, that, that lead, that are able to lead, that are able to guide, that are able to ignite. These are all images of the Holy Spirit. Again, water and fire and light, let alone the actual titles of the Holy Spirit given to us by Christ. Sega, thank you so much uh, for your call. I don't think we've ever received a call from Newfoundland, Father. I think that's a first. Praise God. Absolutely. Wonderful. All right. In a moment, we're going to be talking with uh, Elizabeth in Indiana, a little bit closer here to us. Also, Bruce, a first time caller from Woodstock, Illinois, by the time we get to the Woodstock caller, that is. We also have some uh, lines open for you right now. That's why we call it Open Line Tuesday. And the number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Glad you're with us for Open Line Tuesday here on EWTN with Father Wade Menezes. Uh, we should have a line opening up in a moment here at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Father, before we get back to the phones, you found some other names for the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, I had mentioned water and anointing and fire. You know, water signifies the Spirit's action in baptism, for example, the uh -huh. Church teaches. Our first birth took place in water, so the baptismal water signifies our divine birth. Uh, anointing. Anointing is a sacramental sign of confirmation called chrismation in the East, in the Eastern churches. Jesus is God's anointed in a unique way because the Spirit established him as Christ at his conception. Now the glorified Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit until the saints constitute the whole Christ as St. Augustine says. Mm. Uh, and then fire. Fire symbolizes the transforming energy of the Spirit. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, Luke 3.16. Uh, Jesus came to cast fire on the earth, Luke 12.40 tells us. And on Pentecost, what happens? The Spirit came in the form as though tongues of fire, Acts chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul uses the image saying, do not quench the Spirit, which is something we usually talk about in reference to fire, uh -huh. and that's found in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5.19. And just a, 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 an important note here, it was Christ himself who gave the third person of the Most Holy Trinity the name Holy Spirit, quote, wow. end quote. The name Holy Spirit was given by Christ himself in Matthew 28.19. Spirit and holy, or holy and spirit, mm -hmm. are two attributes common to all three divine persons. Thus, by joining these two words, the Church designates clearly the inexpressible third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, Tom, uh, some other names here. Uh, the Catechism speaks about these in number 692 and 693. On four occasions, Jesus also calls the Holy Spirit the Paraclete, the Advocate, the Consoler, the Spirit of Truth, the spirit of promise, and I love this one, the spirit of adoption. Oh, yeah. Also calls him the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Lord, and the spirit of God. And for those specific citations, simply look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph numbers 692 and 693. They're all right there. This is why I love the Catechism so much, Tom. It's a virtual compendium, capital C of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. I'm holding up the catechism right now for those of you watching our YouTube or Facebook live feeds right now. The Universal Catechism, uh, a virtual compendium of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. Literally, not metaphorically, yeah. literally every page at the bottom has at least one or more scripture quotes, one or more tradition quotes, like Lives of the Saints, for mm -hmm. example, the Church Fathers, and one or more magisterial quotes from church documents. And that's literally, I mean that. And what 
a gift yeah, absolutely. to the people of God. Yeah. What a gift. And St. John Paul II called the Catechism, quote, a sure norm for the faith, end quote, a sure norm for the faith. It is Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. Uh, before we get back to the phones and talk with Elizabeth in Indiana, we've got some big news from the Fathers of Mercy. Yes, I'd like to welcome to uh, the Fathers of Mercy as the new vocation director, Father Joseph Morgan, one of our fairly newly ordained priests. Uh, he's replacing Father Ken Geraci, who is now going full-time on the mission band. So uh, we welcome Father Joseph Morgan to the vocation directorship of the Fathers of Mercy, if you will. And we thank Father uh, Ken Geraci for his time serving as the Fathers of Mercy uh, vocation director. And so Father Joseph's planning uh, as somewhat of a, of, as a norm to have the last weekend of each month as a uh, vocation visitors come and see weekend. Ah. And if a young man uh, cannot make it during that particular weekend, then he can work out a, a, a specific weekend that does work for him with Father Joseph. But as a general rule, Father Morgan's going to try to keep the last weekend open for the come and see weekend. So nice. keep that in mind. If you're 18 to 40, discerning a priestly vocation with a, a dynamic, active preaching apostolate. Uh, you know, I'm often asked, Tom, what are some of the signs of a Father of Mercy vocation? And I like to say that we Fathers of Mercy are looking for good, solid Catholic men who are unabashedly in love with our Lord Jesus Christ and His Bride, the Church. Men who want to help transform a veritable culture of death into a culture of life and love by showing and giving it the mercy of God that it needs so badly. We seek virtuous men for the Fathers of Mercy, men who, despite their own failings, have experienced the mercy of God themselves and so are able to give that great gift to others precisely because they have received it. huh? Yeah. Men who want to live joyfully, the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, all while living and sharing a common life of prayer, work and fraternities. So contact Father Joseph Morgan, our new Fathers of Mercy vocation director at vocations at fathersofmercy.com. That's the word vocation with an S at the end of it, vocations at fathersofmercy.com. Uh, also, uh, that's his email address for his office as vocation director. Also go to fathersofmercy.com, uh, our Facebook page, to see a new uh, colorful ad he just put up there on the homepage of our Facebook a few days ago. Uh, and look at our website in its entirety. Just kind of surf through it, thefathersofmercy.com. The real deal. Check them out, fathersofmercy.com. Here's Elizabeth now in Indiana, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Elizabeth, what's on your mind today? Hi. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, all of your work and wisdom. I, I really enjoy listening to you. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. We appreciate your call today from Indiana. What part of Indiana are you from? Uh, southeastern Indiana. Okay, great. Barthes. Very okay. good. You're not too um, far from so, the Kentucky border. Yeah, very uh, Cincinnati very metro. Yep, 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 yep. That's right. That's right. So my question has to do with um, the language surrounding um, the Eucharist and how in your opening uh, monologue you were even saying uh, what Jesus said and what some quotes from other people where it says, you know, the bread becomes the body of our Lord, and the, yeah, the wine becomes blood. Qu quoting some of the Church Fathers, uh-huh, from, yes. from, from the encyclical yes. Mysterium Fidei from Pope Paul VI. Right. But, um, and there was a lot of talk about this with um, the pandemic, when they were, took away the chalice from a lot of churches, and they said, don't worry. Right. It's the, the bread is still the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. Correct. So I just was wondering, like, is there an important um, distinction, or why is it that we use both of those languages that almost seem contradictory? 
um, and how do we really understand that? So by the two, the two programs that seem contradictory, I think what you're referring to, correct me if I'm wrong, is that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. The two species individually, he mentions the Last Supper during his own consecration at the first Eucharist that ever took place. But yet, in Catholic churches, you may even outside of the pandemic, you may see a Catholic church that that gives only one species. Is that what you're saying? Is that is that what you're trying to find out the answer here is to? Right, because they tell us that both the body and blood are contained in each species. That each is species church teaching. Remember, the whole Jesus. Correct, and this is why somebody who's truly celiac, truly, sincerely, authentically celiac who cannot take any Wheaton product whatsoever, even a low-gluten Wheaton host. They can't even have that. They're so adversely allergic to it. They can receive only the precious blood at Mass and still receive the whole Christ, because the whole Christ's body and blood is included in the blood, and the whole Christ um, body and blood is included in the sacred consecrated host, which is the body. So even if you have a, a piece of flesh that comes off by accident, you know, you get caught on a nail or something, and a little piece of flesh comes off, it's going to contain, even in the minutest of forms, both body and blood in that one little piece of fragment from your own arm that came off when you snagged on a nail, for example. And remember, thirdly as well, that the Church has complete jurisdiction through her own magisterial authority through the discipline of the sacraments, which the celebration of the Eucharist falls under. So she therefore has the authority to say that, yes, one species contains both species. And remember this as well, going back to the truly celiac person, we take that into consideration because of their adverse reaction to even a low-gluten host, we want to be able to accommodate them, and so that's why that can be done. And so... Because the accidents, another a philosophical way of saying characteristics, because the accidents or characteristics remain the same of the bread and wine, they, they can't receive the low-gluten reality that even remains after the consecration. Because remember, the accidents or characteristics of the bread and wine remain. It's, it's a miracle. Transubstantiation is a miracle, as I said in the opening springboard topic. And so even though the accidents or characteristics remain of bread and wine, the substance, the very substance, is really, truly, sincerely, and authentically changed by the words of consecration. So, yes, our Lord did say, this is my body, this is my blood, but he never says in the dialogue at the Last Supper, you must receive both individually in each one on its own merit in order to efficaciously be fed by me. He doesn't say that. He's going to leave it up to his church, his bride, to have the, the jurisdiction over the celebration of the sacraments and, and to unpack more what the words of consecration means in regards to the doctrine of transubstantiation at the Last Supper. Hopefully that helps you out. Does that help you out a little bit there, Elizabeth? So you're saying it is both and that the bread is the body of Christ and the wine is the blood of Christ, but they are both also the body and blood of Christ? No, I'm saying each one contains the other, not that each one is the other. Each one contains the other. Thanks for your call, Elizabeth. Let's go to Bruce, a first-time caller from Woodstock, Illinois, listening on the great WSFI. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hi, Father. I'd like to ask... Uh are deathbed conversions and deathbed confessions acceptable to God? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's not God's plan A for us, it's safe to say, because we know that he wants us to live a life of his sanctifying grace and his virtue and reception of the sacraments on a regular basis, especially Eucharist and confession, the only two sacraments of the seven that can be received over and over and over again throughout our life. That's his plan A for us. He wants to feed us with his sanctifying grace through virtue and virtuous living and regular reception of the sacraments, especially those two. And if we happen to get married, to get married in the church and receive the sacrament of matrimony uh, as examples. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to hold off to the very end to convert. But to answer your question, yes, uh, they are very, very possible. Um, they are accepted by God. Uh, hopefully they're sincere and authentic. They're not coerced because uh, the will has to be involved. And so that's the, that's the main answer to that question there. Great question, by the way. Thank you so much. My book, uh, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, mentions a section on deathbed conversions oh. and why the elements of the last rites are so important. There's some pretty famous uh, deathbed conversions yeah. out there. People have written whole books about that. That's right. That's right. Very good. Uh, Bruce, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, we're covering the evacuations in Ukraine after that dam was destroyed in Ukraine, causing massive flooding. We'll have all the latest for you. Also, you may not have heard about this, but there are three countries, including the United States, currently staging drills near the South China Seas. Also, news from a Catholic perspective on EWTN News Nightly tonight with Tracy Sable. That'll be 9 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. Let's go now to Mark in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, thank you guys for taking the call. And, uh, and Father, I wanted, to, as you did a little with the marriage stuff earlier, to speak about a couple different examples here and just do it, whether they, you know, they're all probably valid marriages, but of what you would know about these and maybe, like I said, pitfalls for people to watch out. Um, the first one was a wedding. We were actually at, up in Maine last weekend, um, which um, we're not sure... The, the groom's background in terms of his faith, we, we actually suspected just that he was Jewish just because of something that happened at the reception that made us think that. Uh, we knew the bride was was baptized and raised Catholic, um, but the ironic part, like in that marriage, and I think this is now part of the culture, what's happening more and more, was afterwards I remember telling people there was no reference to God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the Creator, like anything. There was no reference in that, uh, even though, of course, it seemed like a nice, beautiful little ceremony. And yet, the second one has to do with um, a guy who's 70-some years old here locally. He, I think he's a Christian as a general thing, but finding out that he could sign up to be a pastor, and this can happen to any, we can, any of us do this if we want to, which sounds odd, but within seconds we can register on a website and become like a pastor that we can do a wedding, and he did his son's wedding two or three weeks ago. Um, which, again, I don't know the circumstances of any faith behind that, but just, like, what can you talk, or, or from those information, what can you even respond to? Well, first of all, I'm not a canon lawyer of marriage specifically, or particularly, and I'm not a canon lawyer generally, <laughs> so I can only answer from a Catholic perspective. I, I, you know, I, I presume these, these were Protestant or non-denominational weddings you went to, is that correct? these two examples that you just gave, or, or are you t trying to say these were in the Catholic yeah. Church? No, these, these were both outside the Catholic Church. 
Yeah, okay. so right. I can't speak to other faiths and what other faiths require. I can speak to what somebody of another faith is required to go through if they want to marry a Catholic in order to make their marriage to the Catholic valid. And one example is this. If a, if a Protestant Christian baptized is married to another Protestant Christian baptized, the Catholic Church considers that sacramental, even though neither one is Catholic, but they're mm. both Christians, they're both baptized in the Trinitarian formula. That is a sacramental marriage. That's a valid marriage. Let's say they get divorced, and now they want to marry a Catholic because they've met and fallen in love with a Catholic. In order to marry in the Catholic Church, they're going to have to seek an annulment from that first spouse to prove that that marriage was never sacramental to begin with. So it's not just Catholic weddings that the Catholic Church views as, as sacramental, okay? So I want to refer you to your diocesan canon lawyer of marriage office who can answer specific questions, questions on your behalf, but I can only answer from the Catholic perspective and what the Church requires for a valid marriage to be pleasing before Almighty God. Why? Because matrimony is a sacrament. It's one of seven sacraments. It's one of the two sacraments of union, along with holy orders, that serves the populaces of the entire world. Uh, matrimony with physical life, holy orders with spiritual life. Then there's two sacraments of healing, uh, anointing of the sick and confession for body and soul, respectively. And then there's three sacraments of initiation, baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation. So these seven sacraments are not lollipops. The Church does not hand them out at will to anybody who simply wants them. The sacraments are serious business. They are a literal, personal, real meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ to infuse sanctifying grace into your life. This is why the Church esteems the sacraments in general, and, and since we're talking about matrimony, in particular matrimony. Uh, it's also an image of his relationship with his bride, the Church, which he founded. Okay, So I would agree with you that a lot of people enter into a marriage thinking that anybody can do it this way, and that it's going to be valid, but that's not the case. Uh, if, if it's a Protestant baptized, married to another Protestant baptized, before Almighty God, that first marriage for both of them, and it's the first marriage for both of them, that's an indissoluble bond that yeah. cannot just mean a remarriage to somebody else, even to another Protestant, if those two Protestants get a divorce. But then again, the Catholic Church doesn't have jurisdiction over the Lutherans. The Catholic Church doesn't have jurisdiction over the Anglicans. So the Anglicans may or may not, because I don't know what their particular laws are on marriage, they, are may, they may or may not say you need to get an annulment to marry somebody else who's a Protestant, a different, another Protestant in, in the yeah. same or other faith. They may not require the Anglican annulment. So there you have it. Appreciate your call there, Mark. Let's go to uh, Kathy in North Dakota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question about the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Mm -hmm. And I am just this morning finding out some information that's new to me, and I haven't had time to fully research what I read. But uh, apparently the Divine Mercy Chaplet was banned for a while, like after the Second World War. Yes, that is and correct. Then kind of restored by St. John Paul II. That is correct. But there's, and I wish I could find the article again and document the source. That's okay. okay. It, was a Catholic, it was a Catholic website, 
Yes, Mary, I know exactly what you're talking about. Excuse me, Kathy, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and here's what happened. The original trans, the, the devotion of the chaplet, so I'm going to talk about the devotion versus the writings of St. Faustina. Devotion versus the writings. The devotion was banned because the Polish translations were faulty. Okay, they were faulty translations from the original Polish. And there were some doctrinal issues involved with those faulty translations. It was John Paul II who commissioned a commission to go through Faustina's diary with a fine-tooth comb on the original, um, mm. with the original Polish and to translate into the different languages of the world, the five main languages of the world, exactly what it was she said. And he lifted the band when these valid translations that were non-faulty were completed. And thus the devotion to the chaplet, the Divine Mercy chaplet, was lift, the band of the chaplet was lifted as well. And we have St. John Paul II to thank for this. Yes. Now, the, the Polish sister who did the faulty translation, she did not do it maliciously, especially the one into the English version. Mm -hmm. She did not do it maliciously. She just wasn't well-versed in transcribing from the Polish into the English, into other languages that she did as well, uh, in, a, in a way that was, uh, that was correct, uh, correct and authentic. And it wasn't necessarily through malice, uh, but, but it was done nonetheless. And John yeah. Paul had to see to it that it was done correctly. And what better person than John Paul the Great <laughs> to do such a thing who say, he, he saw through all that. He, and he was a master of languages himself. Fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kathy, great question. Thanks so much for it. Let's go to Mary right here in Birmingham, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Mary. What's on your mind today? Hi, Father Wade. I want to tell you, I have benefited so much from your, I will call them bullet points on the benefits of suffering and the benefits of frequent confessions. Can you direct me to something like this that uh, regarding sin that would tell me, like, what are the characteristics of sin or what are the results of sin? Does sin always draw us into ourselves? Does it always separate us from people? I have questions like that. Okay, sure. Num number 1852 of the Catechism begins with a boldface heading titled, The Different Kinds of Sin. That's exactly what you're looking for. The Different Kinds of Sins, number 1852. The first subsection of that, Mary, is titled, The Gravity of Sin, Mortal and Venial Sin. Okay? And then another heading under that is the proliferation of sin. We're, we're, we're taught that sin creates a proclivity to further sin precisely because it engenders vice by repetition of the same acts. And this results in perverse inclinations which cloud human conscience and corrupts the concrete judgment between good and evil. But that's the section you want to begin with, uh, beginning with 1852 and ending with 1876. So just 20 some, what is that, 24, 25 yeah, yeah. Uh, numbered paragraphs. That's what you want to look at, Mary. Great, great question. And praise God, you've benefited from my bullet points. I'm very big on curt, short, to the point answers. That's why I love open line, the let's, quick Q&A format. Let's get to it here. Mary, thanks so much for your call. Let's go now to Arliss, a first-time caller in Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Arliss, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yes, go right ahead. Yes. And so, um, dealing with the, the Holy Spirit, and uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and uh, when we are and uh, 
being led or uh, as you hear, I know, uh, I was led by the Holy Spirit. If we're being led by the Holy Spirit, there has to be a voice within the Holy Spirit that lives yeah. inside of us. There has to be a, a, a like me talking to y'all. There has to be a voice, correct? Uh, no, not necessarily an audible voice. No, there can be an intuition from the Spirit. Uh, let me give you an example. I want you to go to fathersofmercy.com because we're, we're about 90 seconds now from finishing the show. But so thank you so much, Arliss, for calling in. Uh, go to fathersofmercy.com and on the, on the, the, the homepage there in the upper right-hand corner, you'll click on the magnifying glass icon. Then a search bar appears in the middle of the screen after you click on the magnifying glass. And that search bar in the middle of the screen, I want you to type how to discern if God is speaking to you. How to discern if God is speaking to you. I'll say it one more time. How to discern if God is speaking to you. Some general principles to consider. And for example, the idea you're having or which has been presented to you is in accord with sacred scripture as upheld by uh, sacred tradition, the magisterium of the church. Number two, the idea comes to you while praying. Number three, the idea involves an element of faith, and at the same time, it strengthens faith. Uh, number four, the idea fosters your personal interior and exterior charity. That's a big one. And at the same time, it fosters hope within you to keep going forward to do the works of God that scripture talks about. Uh, number five, the idea is often repeated within your intellect, while at the same time, it is in accord with human reason, and it brings you great peace. Number six, Six, the idea grows stronger within you over time. And I would add even number seven, that you, after sharing it with a spiritual director and a confessor, the spiritual director and or confessor authenticates this as valid, this idea or this inkling or this intuition you've been having. Uh, St. Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, one of our great American saints, says, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen to that. God's yeah. will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. So six uh property, six points of reasoning, how to discern if God is speaking to you. It's one of my blogs located at fathersofmercy.com. And thank you so much for a great witness question. Appreciate your call there, Arliss. Uh, delighted to have you here in studio, Father Wade. Could you leave us with your blessing? I certainly will, Tom. <laughs> May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. Don't forget, tomorrow at this same time, Father Mitch Packway is here. He'll be unpacking the teachings of the Church on our Open Line Wednesday edition of the program. Thanks again, Father Wade. Uh, we'll uh, You're be praying for your safe travels. Thank you so much, Tom. God bless you, and thank you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time right here on EWTN's Open Line. I'm Tom Price. Have a great day, and God bless. <laughs>